Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. And I'm Andrew Tobias. Mary Kilpatrick is out this week, but we've got a special show. We'll get to that in just a minute. First, special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for providing us the space and the equipment as usual. They are a fantastic partner and we love working with them. Be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting service. It helps other people find this podcast. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn, basically all of your favorite podcasting apps. You can find us on there. And if you have any feedback about the show, be sure to send it to me. I'm at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on Ohio Matters, we're going to try something a little different. Uh, Normally what we do is we have a guest come in here and sort of explain their background and talk to them for an in-depth interview. We're still going to do some of that in-depth coverage, but we decided to have Kyle Kondik in. Kyle is the managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia Center for Politics, and he's actually joining us here right now. How's it going, Kyle? Good to see you guys. Kyle, you are actually an Ohio native as well, correct? I am uh, from Independence. That's where I went to school, and I went to Ohio University. Uh, worked at some newspapers in Northeast Ohio, uh, and uh, then worked for Richard Cordray, who's one of the candidates we'll be talking about here today. Uh, and I've I was in I've been at the University of Virginia Center for Politics for uh, more than seven years now. Uh, I'm actually based in Washington D.C., um, but uh, get back here qu- quite often, and I really try to keep tabs on what's going on here in Ohio. And we were talking about this off air, but uh, the listeners may not be able to may not know this, but you're wearing uh, Cleveland Brown socks, right? I am now. wearing Cleveland Brown socks. I was uh, watching the draft with uh, a lot of interest. Uh, I was not a huge fan of the Baker Mayfield thing, but, uh, you know, we're, we'll all just come together and I think we have to try to support him and see what happens. That's <laughs> so all we can do in these troubling that's, times. That's exactly right. Yeah. All you can have is hope. Uh, so what we wanted to do today is run through all these primary races that are coming up and give the listeners a little bit more perspective into what's going on here. And we've got quite a lot of races that are, uh, one, both contested and two, interesting. So I think we're just going to kind of start from the top, from the beginning. Everybody's really been talking about the gubernatorial race. We'll work our way down as the episode goes along, but we want to start with the gubernatorial primaries. And I guess let's just go ahead and start off with the Republicans, since, you know, John Kasich is the one leaving office. What do you kind of make of that race right now? Well, it's interesting you bring up Governor Kasich, because I think that if he were allowed to run for a third term and he could make it to the general election ballot, he probably would win a third term if if, if he had the chance to. Uh, whether he would win renomination in Republican primary, I think, is a different story. It's interesting that uh, Kasich came into office as such a polarizing figure, uh, you know, kind of beloved by conservative Republicans, um, generally liked by independents, but really hated by Democrats. And now, uh, you know, if you look at multiple polls, be it public ones or, or some private polling that I've heard about, you know, Kasich's approval rating is basically the same amongst Democrats and Republicans or maybe even a little bit better with Democrats. And here we have this primary where, you know, you've got Mike DeWine, the uh, sitting state attorney general, running against Lieutenant Governor Mary Taylor, who was Kasich's running mate for his two successful elections. And uh, neither of them are really embracing uh, John Kasich. In fact, uh, they've been um, maybe suggesting that if they got elected, that they would try to undo or at least modify uh, one of Kasich's signature achievements, which was Medicaid expansion uh, made possible by uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and so, you know, you, you, you sort of see the divide in the Republican Party in this primary in which I think that, that DeWine particularly is kind of trying to straddle the world of the Republican world of John Kasich and the larger universe of Donald Trump, the president, uh, who is uh, very popular in Ohio and very popular with Republicans uh, overall. So, so then, you know, you have Mary Taylor, who was Kasich's former running mate, but it's almost like she's running against Kasich, which is kind of strange. So what do you think about the race that she's run? 
Uh, it has been pretty interesting in that this so this was a four person race for a long time uh, in 2017. You had DeWine running, you had Taylor running, you also had uh, Jim Renacy, a U.S. House member who's now running for U.S. Senate after Josh Mandel dropped out. Uh, and then you also had John Husted, the Secretary of State, who was seen by many, I think, as the most formidable uh, opponent for DeWine. And then they ended up joining forces, Husted uh, uh, becoming uh, DeWine's uh, running mate. And, you know, then then Renacy got out to run for Senate earlier this year. And so a four way race turned into a two way race. And I think that if you would ask people in 2017 who the least likely of the four then candidates were to be nominated, a lot of people would have said Mary Taylor. And she just was not someone who I think was all that respected by, you know, Republican operatives in the state. I think that a lot of people thought the other candidates would outwork her, et cetera. But here, I think over the last, I don't know, six, seven weeks of the campaign, I think Taylor's run a pretty spirited race. Some would say kind of a an odd race, uh, sort of running against John Kasich, basically disavowing John Kasich, who has technically endorsed her, kind of hugging Donald Trump. But, you know, that's sort of where I think where you kind of want to be in a Republican primary is sort of as close as you can be to Donald Trump and and further to the right. I mean, it's interesting that there was this anti-establishment kind of movement on the Republican side throughout the Obama years. And now we have a Republican president you know, you'd think that maybe the party would sort of uh, get in line, so to speak, behind its leadership. And I think the party is in line behind Donald Trump, but not necessarily behind other big Republican uh, leaders across the country. And I think we're also in a period where a long resume is not necessarily an asset in a Republican primary. And of course, Mike DeWine has a very impressive and long resume in, Amer in Ohio politics uh, and nationally, both a U.S. House member and as a member of the U.S. Senate. Of course, Taylor is not, you know, a political neophyte. I mean, she was in the state legislature. She's state auditor. She's been lieutenant governor for, you know, for, for what will be eight years. But Taylor is kind of, uh, you know, running, running away from that, I think, and running away from Kasich and, you know, certainly giving DeWine some trouble. I mean, DeWine has had to spend five million dollars in this primary. Uh, I think that his campaign was always prepared for a tough primary. It's just that for a time after he linked up with Husted, it looked like DeWine might be able to coast. I don't think he's coasting now, but he's also still clearly favored. Republicans sort of running away from John Kasich. He's like you said, he's a popular incumbent governor. And I'm curious, how often do you even see that in races? I mean, the only time I can think of people kind of running away from whoever the incumbent governor is or whoever was sitting in the office is basically if they've committed some kind of you know crime. Kasich, by all accounts, is you know still very popular, still you know above fifty percent uh, you know favorability in typically most every poll we see. What makes this so different, though, is, I mean, is it just that, like, him butting head with, heads with Donald Trump? Is that... Yeah, I mean, I think that, that Kasich's, you know, refusal to get in line behind Donald Trump after he won the primary over John Kasich and, and many others, uh, I think is really animating this. And Kasich has continued to be critical of the president. I don't think Kasich has sort of hid the fact that he might want to run for president again in 2020. And I think he's been taking some steps to potentially do that. And... You know, ultimately, the Republican Party chose Trump, you know, even here in Ohio. I think, you know, Kasich won the won his primary against Trump pretty convincingly in 2016. I think if you had a presidential primary today against Trump and Kasich, Trump would win probably very convincingly himself. And there, there actually I think there's been some polling about that. And so, you know, Kasich was part of the so-called never Trump crowd on the Republican side. He has continued to be, even as a lot of other people who have been suspicious of Trump in the past have have sort of gotten in line behind the president. And so it is odd, but it's it's also odd to see a popular governor who, 
essentially has the same approval rating amongst his party and the other party. And again, that, that was certainly not the case when Kasich uh, first first took office. And, you know, Kasich has has uh, moved to the center on certain things that Medicaid expansion, I think, is a, is a great example. But I also don't think that he's some sort of, uh, you know, squishy moderate. I mean, I think John Kasich is a conservative. Uh, it's just that he has uh, he doesn't really like Trump all that much. Trump really doesn't like him. Uh, and Republican primary voters are generally more inclined to be supportive of, of Trump right now. So, it, it, I mean, I think that you do see gubernatorial candidates running away from the incumbent if that person, as you said, has ethical problems or is just unpopular. I mean, sometimes governors leave office with terrible approval ratings. I mean, you know, Bob Taft, when he uh, left office in 2006, uh, certainly Republicans were running away from him. His approval rating was weak, and he also had his own ethical problems. He got, got convicted for a very kind of mi- very minor yeah, his, uh, his, campaign his, finance issue. His approval rating was like in the single digits. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was just awful. And, uh, of course, that contributed to, uh, to the last time the Democrats really had a, a, had a strong election at the statewide level in the, in the state, which was 2006. So I know you can't see the future, but you do run a publication called The Crystal Ball. So uh, how do you think this race turns out? Well, like like I said, I, I do think that DeWine is, is certainly favored in the primary. You know, would I be totally shocked if Taylor won? Not necessarily because, uh, you know, th- there isn't always a lot of polling in these primary races and the polling you get is not always great. It's just it's kind of a hard thing to, to try to figure out. I will say that, that there was uh, there was one poll that sort of showed DeWine up big in both polls, but sort of losing ground and Taylor picking up steam to the point where, you know, DeWine was up by 35 and now he's up by more like uh, 15 to 20. And sometimes these polls do, you know, the trend lines are, are useful. And so if Taylor ends up only losing by five points or something, we can't say, oh, we, you know, nothing pointed to that potentially happening because we do have some polling. We also have the fact that both candidates are spending as if this is a very competitive race. You know, again, DeWine has put $5 million in, in, in so far. He still has a really big uh, campaign war chest for the general election, assuming he makes it there. Uh, Taylor's put in another, another $2 million on television. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's a very, um, it's a very active race, which uh, suggests that it's not a 100% slam dunk. Although I will tell you that some of the, the, the observers I've talked to in Columbus, not necessarily people who are, um, supportive of DeWine's candidacy, basically think this is all a mirage and that DeWine's just going to win totally going away. But uh, I don't I just I don't feel comfortable enough making a, a, a strong pronouncement about it. But certainly DeWine is the favorite. It'd be interesting, though, in this era where like political status quo is being disrupted and all of that, that somebody like Mike DeWine potentially still kind of walks through Republican primary, right? Yeah. And that's that's another reason to be a little bit cautious in making a strong pronouncement about this race, because a Republican primary electorate opting to go with the more avowedly pro-Trump candidate and the candidate who's trying to run as an outsider, that would not be a surprise because we've seen that we've seen that story before uh, in the in the Republican Party. So, again, there are there are reasons to be cautious, even while acknowledging that I think DeWine is, is, is definitely the favorite uh, going into the, uh, the Tuesday election. You know, Republicans aren't the only race that's going on. There's also a very hotly contested Democratic primary between Dennis Kucinich and Richard Cordray. I guess your old boss, Richard Cordray. Yep. And uh, what are you seeing there from, uh, you know, where you're sitting? What, what do you see there? 
just like the Republican race, the Democratic race has had sort of two different stages. You know, for much of 2017, it looked like there would be uh, one of four candidates who would get get the nomination. Uh, Dayton, Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley, Connie Pillich, a former state representative from the Cincinnati area. Joe Schiavone, state Senate minority leader from the Youngstown area. And then Betty Sutton, a former House member from the Akron area. Later in the year, Bill O'Neill, sort of a controversial to say the <laughs> least, uh, former state Supreme Court uh, justice got in the race. So it was it was sort of briefly a five person race. And then Richard Cordray came back home from Washington from his job at the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Of course, Cordray is a former state treasurer and, and state attorney general who lost a, a very close race to Mike DeWine in, uh, in, in 2010 amidst the Republican wave that year. Cordray came back uh, late last year and uh, did, a, did a pretty decent job of trying to consolidate the field. Pillich and Whaley got out. Sutton joined Cordray's ticket. Uh, Schiavone uh, stayed in, um, but never really seemed like someone who, who really uh, could, could seriously threaten for the nomination, and O'Neill stayed in. Oh, then Dennis Kucinich decided to run, uh, former U.S. House member, of course, from uh, former Cleveland mayor. And Kucinich, I think, entered the race certainly with more name recognition than, uh, than Richard Cordray, and also kind of a more fiery persona. And, and Kucinich latched on to uh, some issues where he could, you know, c- present a contrast to Cordray, specifically on guns. Kucinich, you know, walks around wearing this lapel pin with his F rating, just this F with uh, his rating from the National Rifle Association. You know, I think I saw him actually try to hand Cordray one of those pins at one <laughs> of the debates. You know, Cordray came over to shake hands and... Dennis pulled out, it looked what looked like what was a pin out of his pocket. Yeah. So. yeah. How do you respond to that so you don't end up like in a photo of that happening? You know, because you can't like duck because then it just, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you know, I mean, again, I was I was there for it. But I mean, I've I've a you know mailer from uh, from the 2010 Cordray campaign that, you know, shows Cordray standing in front of a uh, a firing range, you know, talking about uh, how supportive he is of, of gun rights. And I mean, that's, the, you know, that's the, that's the kind of candidate that that he was and I think is still to some degree, although uh, the NRA, you know, has since downgraded his uh, um, his grade. So I think he's down to a C minus. Kucinich is still an F. Uh, DeWine, by the way, who um, used to be uh, really opposed by the NRA, I think he's up to a B with the NRA rating. So he's used his time as AG to sort of mend fences with the with the with the gun crowd. And Mary Taylor, I think, has an A from from the from the NRA. And, you know, Cordray still has not gone as far left on Kucin- as, as Kucinich has on guns. I, I, you know, Cordray still doesn't uh, support, uh, you know, so-called assault wife, we- weapons ban. Uh, and I think that Cordray is still trying to sort of hold on to trying to be in the middle to some degree uh, on, on the gun issue. And we'll see if he's able to be uh, successful about that. So anyway, Kucinich glommed on to this gun issue, which, of course, was was and is a big deal and in the Democratic uh, uh, primary. And so I think Kucinich just caused caused Cordray some problems here. Um, again, I think Cordray is, is still the favorite to be nominated. Uh, it seems like kind of indirectly the the party infrastructure is is basically behind Cordray. Certainly, labor um, really likes Cordray. At least the bulk of a bulk of labor really likes Cordray quite a bit. In fact, I think that one of the reasons why some of the other candidates couldn't get any traction is that I think labor was kind of on the sidelines a little bit, waiting for Cordray to come in because it was sort of rumored for for a long time that Cordray might be. Uh, um, might be coming back. But, you know, Kucinich is also um, he's just a more fiery campaigner. I mean, Cordray is you know former Jeopardy champion. He's, he's uh, um, you know, ver- I think a very thoughtful guy, but he's also not someone who's going to light up a room like the way that maybe a more, you know, a more fiery candidate might li- might might be like. I mean, I, I almost feel like, you know, Cordray's from the from the Columbus suburbs. And of course, of course, Kucinich is from here in Cleveland. 
I actually kind of think that uh, and I make this point in, in the, the piece I wrote for our Crystal Ball newsletter on uh, that came out uh, uh, a couple days ago. Uh, is that Kucinich, I think, represents Cleveland, like what Cleveland is pretty well. I mean, he's he's got a great, uh, uh, you know, ethnic Eastern European last name. Uh, you know, so he's he's part of that, uh, that, that uh, um, you know, children of immigrants, you know, culture that is such a big deal up here in Northeast Ohio that really isn't in Columbus and Cincinnati. That's a big difference between Northeast Ohio and the rest of the state with sort of the immigration patterns uh, from, you know, from a century ago. Uh, Kucinich is, is fiery, he's in your face. I think Cleveland is kind of like that too. And, you know, Cordray, I think, is is a little more staid, a little bit more consensus-oriented, and I think that's kind of what Columbus more is. I, I think that uh, actually Brent Larkin, writing for the, you know, for the uh, column for Cleveland.com a few years ago, kind of compared Columbus and Cleveland and kind of, uh, you know, basically said that, that, Cleveland was kind of more interesting, but Columbus is better run. <laughs> and and I think that's probably that that's probably a good way to look at uh, the two cities. But uh, the, and the, the regional thing is important, too, because, of course, we do still have two other candidates or more, more than that, although two other kind of kind of uh, uh, major known candidates, Bill O'Neill and Joe Schiavone. And Northeast Ohio is the by far the richest source of votes in a Democratic primary. Almost half of the, the total votes are probably going to come from Northeast Ohio. I, I look back at the last two contested Democratic presidential primaries, 08 and 16. Uh, it was about 45 percent in the 20 county Northeast Ohio region of the vote came from came from uh, uh, Northeast Ohio and uh, in, in those primaries. And. But you do have three of the four major candidates are from from Northeast Ohio because Bill O'Neill's from the east side suburbs, uh, Cassini's from Cleveland and Shivoni's from the Youngstown area. Also, I, I talked about this sort of uh, the, the white ethnic diaspora here in <laughs> Northeast Ohio. You know, you do have three different ethnic last names. You know, Kucinich is uh, uh, Croatian. You've got O'Neill with an Irish last name, Shivoni, Italian, and they, they may just sort of slice up the Northeast Ohio vote. I think Kucinich would be more of a threat to Cordray if it was just Kucinich versus Cordray, mm -hmm. because, for instance, I think Shivoni is going to get a healthy slice of the vote from Youngstown. Uh, and I think that if it were just Cordray versus Kucinich, Kucinich would probably do better in Youngstown than Cordray would, I would think. And uh, so... Uh, you know, I think that the, the 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 structure of the race isn't isn't the best for Kucinich. He might have been better off if uh, Shavoni or O'Neill or both had gotten out. Meanwhile, you know, Cordray is the only candidate from outside of uh, Northeast Ohio. He should really do quite well in in Franklin County, which is a you know growing source of of Democratic votes in both both state you know in general elections and also. Uh, in, in primaries. And of course, there isn't a there isn't a Dayton candidate. There isn't a Cincinnati candidate. Um, so, you know, who does well in those places is, is, is kind of uh, it's kind of anyone's anyone's guess at this point. But, you know, Cordray has more resources, just like DeWine does on the other side. Unlike on the Republican side, this has not been a nasty television air war. Certainly Kucinich and Cordray have uh, mixed it up quite a bit in their joint public appearances, in, including at the, uh, you know, the editorial board at the, at the Plain Dealer. But it hasn't really played out aggressively on the airwaves like it has on the Republican side. And, you know, if Kucinich does score an upset on Tuesday, I wonder if you can look back and say, hey, maybe Cordray made a mistake by not going after him on television. But it seems like Cordray's decided to, to, to basically uh, run a more positive campaign on television, even while, you know, the two campaigns are, are, are combative over, over certain issues. Um, one other wrinkle in this primary that I think is of interest is that 
there was a somewhat damaging story that came out about Kucinich recently about him taking, uh, uh, doing a paid speech for this group that is basically, a, you know, uh, supports uh, Bashar al-Assad and the, the Syrian regime. And of course, Kucinich has, has visited Syria before. He's met with Assad before. And I, I, when that story first came out, I, I guess I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But in talking to some people who are tracking the race, they actually did think it was a big deal, and they thought that, that Kucinich might have actually been hurt by it. And I don't know if it's if it's necessarily a surprise then that Kucinich did say he was going to give the money back. And supposedly, and again, this is just from what some of my sources have said, um, the story was shared pretty heavily online, in, you know, on social media and democratic circles, and that um, it may have served to blunt some of Kucinich's uh, momentum. So I just thought that was interesting because, again, you'd think, oh, well, do people really care about Syria and Maybe they don't care about Syria necessarily, but but maybe they think that uh, that Kucinich was, um, you know, that his connections to, to to that regime, whatever they are, you know, maybe are are, are kind of problematic. That's interesting. I was uh, at a de- at the final kind of debate that they had. It wasn't Democratic Party sanctioned or anything, and I was talking to voters out there. Now, granted, this was on Kucinich's home turf, east side of Cleveland. People there seemed to either not know that it happened or just didn't care, had other thoughts on their minds. So is it more of the kind of, uh, you know, the Franklin County, Hamilton County, that kind of area who yeah, seem to be it, caring it, more it, about it? It might be. Uh, and again, I you know, this is all, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to kind of track. Hmm. But, you know, some some people whose opinions I, I trust on this seem to seem to think it actually was was meaningful, which, again, I didn't I didn't personally think that much of it when I saw it, when I saw the story break. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's an interesting, uh, interesting wrinkle here. And I know the Cordray folks have been kind of, you know, passing that around, but again, it's not something you're necessarily seeing, you know, television advertising on. So Kucinich is almost like an unexpected entrant into this race. I think he's kind of one of those guys who, especially maybe were in the democratic primaries where like the cupboard's a little bare. Um, it's always like, oh, who's going to run? And Dennis Kucinich is kind of one of those names that comes up. Um, what do you think it says about the fact that he's managed to gain traction and that maybe conversely that Cordray, who came in with all the trappings of kind of a front runner, hasn't? You know, I don't necessarily I think it suggests that, you know, Cordray's name ID probably wasn't as good as maybe he and his campaign had hoped uh, when he got in. And I also think that, you know, Kucinich looked at the field even after Cordray got in and said, hey, why can't I why can't I come in and, and compete for this nomination? And one good thing for Kucinich is that. He's a person who's very well known, you know, especially in Democratic circles, you know, having run for president twice, granted, you know, totally unsuccessfully. But, um, you know, he was on that debate stage in, in 04 and 08. And he's someone who's been, uh, you know, around for for quite a long time. And so I think he just, you know, he just looked at it and said, hey, why, you know, why not? You know, the, the Democratic Party does not necessarily have a proven super strong bench in, in Ohio. I mean, you know, I think Cordray is a, a credible candidate, although he's also someone who who has uh, has kind of a spotty electoral record uh, and hasn't been on the ballot since 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 2010. And you know, I mentioned some of the other candidates who who uh, who w- were running and are running. You know, Joe Schiavone, I think, is decently known in in the Mahoning Valley, but certainly not uh, statewide. You know, Democrats talk about Nan Whaley, the the mayor of Dayton, like she's the next big thing. But you know, she ran and really didn't really didn't get any traction. And, uh, you know, it, it also gets at kind of a, an interesting question for the, the state Democratic Party, which, again, is 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 officially out of this race, although I think that that probably most, you know, official Democratic world in Franklin County and, and you know, in the state party would, would prefer certainly prefer Cordray over Dennis Kucinich. And I think the National Democrats uh, certainly prefer Cordray over over Kucinich, too. But 
for for the last several cycles, the state party has kind of anointed candidates who turned out to be basically disasters in some of these races. Uh, Lee Fisher's 2010 Senate race, the, the party endorsed her over Jennifer Bruner. Uh, that ended up being kind of a sneaky competitive primary. In fact, it actually it reminds me a little bit of the of the DeWine Taylor race, just in that um, you had two uh, statewide officials. The party went totally in on one and the other one sort of hung around and, and turned out to be to be a pest. I mean, I'm not saying that that it's going to turn out that way. I just it's just been been sort of an interesting little wrinkle to me. You know, they, the party came in heavily for Ed Fitzgerald in 2014. We know how that went. They basically abdicated the governor's race in 2014, which caused turnout to just totally plummet for Democrats. And they uh, did horribly all all over the state that year. You know, in the 2016, Ted Strickland got the blessing of the party against P.G. Sittenfeld, who, you know, both of them would have lost, but Strickland's never going to run again. And P.G. Sittenfeld may have a future, but, you know, they could have used that slot, that statewide slot to uh, allow somebody else to, you know, some rising person to get more visibility. And look, I think the pressure is on. I mean, th this would be true for Cordray or Kucinich if they get nominated that, you know, if they don't win this time, this is probably it for them. Whereas if Joe Schiavone was the nominee or Nan Whaley was the nominee, you know, maybe they would maybe that would just be the first time that they would run. I mean, there's this old there's this old saw in Ohio politics about how you have to lose statewide first. You know, you have to lose once statewide and then then you could get your career going. Um, that proved not to be true for Strickland, although, of course, he won once and then lost twice. But, you know, Cordray himself lost the, the, the 98 AG's race and then uh, uh, tried to run for Senate, then got elected to county government and then got elected treasurer and, and AG. Going going back, you could look at look at you know successful statewide candidates like George Voinovich, who lost uh, to Howard Metzenbaum in the Senate race in 1988, went on to have a fabulous career. DeWine himself lost to John Glenn in 1992, uh, running statewide, went on to have a very strong career, uh, other than his loss to Sherrod Brown in 2006. Uh, so you know, losing once, you know, it, it could help you kind of kind of uh, move along here. Now, of course, uh, you know, in in the for the time being, it may be that Cordray is the strongest possible candidate the Democrats can put up, and and that's that. That's a feeling that I think most Democrats feel in Columbus, but not all. And I think some people would prefer to have somebody uh, who's who's more of kind of a rising star as the as the candidate, be it a Shavoni or again Whaley when she was running. But you know, all I could say is that if if this race doesn't work out for Democrats this year, if they lose the governorship, which would mean that Republicans would have hold it, held it, let's go to 2022, it would be 28 of 32 years if the, if the Republicans win in, in 2018, if you extend it out. Uh, so for basically a generation, the Democrats really haven't done much in state government. Yeah, that's, that's Browns-esque. And yeah, that is Browns-esque. <laughs> yeah. And um, if you can't win in this environment, open seat governorship, a national environment that is probably going to be at least marginally and maybe maybe very favorable. Uh, it leads one to question, well, when will, you know, when will the Democrats win statewide? So I think the pressure's on. And also the, the gubernatorial candidate has got to be strong on the Democratic side, because I do think that they could win some of these other statewide executive offices, too, with the proper leadership from the, from the top of the ticket. I mean, I think that the Democratic ticket is generally pretty decent. Um, not to say the Republican ticket is, is bad, but it's just that I think that they can compete for some of these down ticket offices. But I think the governor's race kind of, I mean, it is, you know, actually at the top of the ballot. 
And I do think that the governor's race sort of sets the tone for the, for the entire statewide ticket. Although, of course, we've got a, a Senate incumbent, Sherrod Brown, in this race, too. Do you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. You know, Sherrod's running uh, uncontested, so, you know, there's not much reason to spend a lot of time on him. But in the Republican side, uh, it obviously was a very strange development when when Josh Mandel, the Ohio treasurer, dropped out in January and basically left the party who had been targeting this seat, suddenly trying to find somebody to basically slot in there. So what do you think about the Republican primary for Senate? It, it certainly looks like Jim Renacci is a big favorite to get nominated. He has a, There are a few other candidates uh, who are running most prominently as a, as a guy named Mike Gibbons, who is a, a business person from uh, Northeast Ohio. Renacci, of course, is, is from uh, Northeast Ohio. He's from the sort of the Canton area. Um, that's where his um, that's the turf that he represented in the in the U.S. House, although he actually represents a part of Cuyahoga County, too, that, you know, the, the maps are the maps go all over the place by by design. So the Republicans can um, can can win as many as possible as, as they designed it. But uh, I would never rule out a outsider business person winning a Republican primary because we've we've seen it many times on the Republican side. And I'm not just talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about, you know, the uh, primary races in, in, a, in a lot of different places. But that said, you know, Renacci has the president's endorsement. Renacci has more resources. I don't know if Renacci has tremendous name ID, but he's sort of a more established person. So, you know, Renacci is definitely the, the favorite to get nominated. And looking ahead of the fall, polling has generally showed Brown with a, with a, with a decent lead, but not an insurmountable one. You know, the Renacci, a, a, a super PAC that was supportive of Renacci, did, re- released a poll a few weeks ago and basically, you know, had they had Trump's approval at 58 percent or something in Ohio, which to me seemed un- unrealistically high. But but that's what they said. And even in a poll with Trump at 58 percent, they actually still had Brown up. They basically had to raise tide Brown 41, Renacci 40. So that leads me to believe that uh, that Brown is, in fact, leading if, the you know, if, if a Republican pollster can't even you know get the race to to showing a Renacci lead but that said you know Brown has way more name ID to start out with Renacci should be well funded in that he's putting a lot of his own money into the race uh, we'll see if he can uh, do better in terms of uh, uh, fundraising from from uh, from you know from donors coming up here I, I don't think that national Republicans like the the people running the national Senate campaign I think that they probably, would list maybe a half or dozen or more Democratic-held seats as sort of more prominent targets. I, I do think the White House is pretty interested in this uh, in this race, and you know Trump has spoken favorably about Renacci. Um, you know Trump's been to Ohio uh, a lot, including this weekend. You know, so so there may be some um, uh, there may be some support coming from the White House. You know, I mentioned before that you know that things are set up so that you know the Democrats should be able to really compete for the governorship this year. I mean, if Sherrod Brown loses, that probably means that all the other statewide Democratic candidates are going to lose, 
And it probably means that Democrats are only making very modest gains in the you know Republican dominated um, state legislature and probably aren't picking up any congressional seats either. And again, that would be just a disastrous outcome for Democrats, because I think there's already some worry that for Democrats that, you know, this state that is historically has, you know, a little bit of Republican lean at the federal level, maybe more of one at the at the state political level, but still usually very competitive. I think there's some concern that the state is kind of fading away for the Democrats. And there would be no greater indicator of that than if Sherrod Brown lost reelection. So I think Sherrod Brown is, is favored to win reelection. I think being a reasonably popular incumbent who is not part of the president's party in a midterm election. Historically, those kinds of incumbents are very difficult to beat. But, uh, you know, the, the fact that the state took took a right turn in 2016, I think, has to, you know, means that, that, that Brown has to obviously take the race very seriously, which I think he probably is. And it's not just Senate race. We, You and I have actually talked about some of the congressional races quite a bit. And I think about a year ago, if you'd have looked at the congressional map in Ohio, Everybody would have thought it was going to be 12-4. It was going to end up basically the same. That doesn't seem to be the case now, though. So uh, I guess, you know, just pick a race. Which one do you want to start with? We've got a couple up here and then also one down in the Columbus area, in the 12, that's really interesting that I think is probably going to get a lot of national exposure here pretty soon. Yeah, let's start with Ohio 12. That district is uh, formerly held by uh, Representative Pat Tiberi, who who recently resigned to take a, a very lucrative position in Columbus. Uh, with business group. Uh, and then, but that, that district effectively was held prior to Tiberi by, by Governor Kasich. He won it in 1982 and held it through 2000. And so that's the uh, uh, growing affluent uh, northern Columbus suburbs. So, uh, you know, Delaware County, uh, some of the suburbs in uh, northern Franklin County. Uh, you also have some, some other uh, surrounding areas. And this is a district that is contains some of the most historically bedrock Republican territory in the whole state. Uh, I mean, Delaware County, which is the most affluent, uh, most educated, most fastest growing county in the state. It also is arguably the most re- Republican county in the whole state. Uh, historically speaking, it is a place that has not voted Democratic for president since 1916. So for, for basically 100 years, it's voted Republican for president and down, down ballot, too. But interestingly, interestingly, it also was one of the only places in the state where Donald Trump actually did worse than Mitt Romney did. Now, Trump still won the county, but it was by a little bit less than what uh, than what Romney had, had won it by. And that makes sense, given what we know about the president's support, which is that he he picked up a, 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 a small but significant a chunk, extra chunk of sort of white uh, working class voters, meaning white voters who do not have a four year college degree. But he also had some subtle losses amongst white college educated Ohioans and, and nationally. And again, since since Delaware County is. I think the only place in the state where um, the uh, four-year college attainment is uh, about 50%, which is very very high. National average is about 30%. It's like it's in the high 20s in, in Ohio. You know, that's a that's that's a, a part of this district we're talking about, and so it'll be an interesting test for the Republican brand in a place that voted for Trump but probably doesn't like Trump the way that maybe it liked previous Republican candidates. And there is a very competitive primary going on on the Republican side. It's a, it's a big field. There seem to be two leaning uh, candidates, um, Troy Balderson, who is a state senator, uh, Melanie Lenahan, sorry, uh, who's a township uh, trustee. Uh, Lenahan is more of the kind of um, 
conservative Trump kind of outsider candidate. Balderson is supported by T. Barry. There are other candidates who could win the nomination. And then on the Democratic side, they have a big field too. The likeliest nominee is Danny O'Connor, who is the, pretty recently elected as a Franklin County uh, recorder. And this is a district that Trump won by about 11 points. Republicans just lost a district that Trump won by 20 points in Western Pennsylvania in a special election in March. They came close to losing a historically very Republican district in um, the Phoenix suburbs early er, uh, a few weeks ago that uh, the Republican only won by less than five points. And that's a district that that also voted for Trump by about 20 points. So if you just look at some of these specials where the Republicans have really underperformed, you'd probably expect Ohio 12 to be very, very competitive. And there's no guarantee that I mean, there's what, like 18 candidates running in that race on both sides, if I'm not mistaken. And literally, you know, when you have that many candidates, any candidate can kind of break through and get onto the general election. And there could there could be some sort of late break at the end. And, you know, we don't have a runoff in in Ohio. And so, you know, you could win the nomination with 25 percent of the vote or something. Um, which which may actually be be the case in uh, in one or both of those primaries. That's the first one to watch, just because the general election is is before November. It's on August. It, it's in August, uh, and I suspect that that'll get a lot of national uh, media attention, and there'll be a lot of uh, ad spending in that race. Do you think that it's going to matter that the people in that race are going to have to run not only for the primary and the general, but they're going to have to run for a special? Is that going to make any difference in that race? You would expect that the person who wins in August would then also win in November. That's usually how these things go. But, you know, it is it is hypothetically possible that different people could win the primary for the special and for the for the general. I mean, that's kind of a do over. Yeah. yeah, You you, you probably would not think that would happen because you figure people would just mark the same box for for both races. But, you know, you just never know. I mean, where things happen, particularly if the race is the the, the primary race is, is really close. But, you know, it may also be that if it's the same nominees that we'll have the election in August and then that'll just be, you know, a, a sort of a preview of November when it may also be hotly contested. So, you know, Ohio 12 is probably not a district that would be a top tier Republican target. Certainly if Pat Tiberi were running for reelection, it, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be that, that much in the Democratic radar. But the fact that it is an open seat and it has the special election means that it will be a focus in August. You know, if there was no special election, even as an open seat, it would probably be on the radar, but maybe not as not as much. And, uh, you know, again, I think that, the, you know, the candidates will will, will matter on, on both sides here and we'll uh, we'll get a we'll figure that out on Tuesday. And we've got another open seat up here in the 16th. What are you kind of seeing there? That's another interesting primary, kind of a similar dynamic to the Ohio 12 primary. Here you have uh, Christina Hagan, who is a state uh, member of the state legislature running as kind of the the, the Trump, the Trump candidate. Uh, you have Anthony Gonzalez, former Ohio State player, former uh, NFL player, most notably with the Colts. He uh, is sort of running as kind of the maybe less to the right than than Hagan, but certainly still running as a conservative. You know, again, it's a, I think it's similar to the, you know, the Balderson uh, Lenahan uh, race in uh, in Ohio 12, you know, that sort of similar kind of predictable dynamic. I mean, really, the the gubernatorial primary is kind of that way, too. You have two conservative Republicans, but one is kind of running as more of an outsider and more uh, expressly uh, supportive of of the president, even though, you know, all these candidates on the Republican side are are supportive of the president. So they're they're um, the differences may be more in in tone than actually in, in substance. But so we've got another one of those kind of primaries going on. You've got kind of a largely anonymous Democratic field in that seat. Ohio 16 is definitely drawn to elect a Republican, 
Trump won it by about 16 or 17 points. Uh, it was more competitive in the past. In fact, that's the district that Jim Renacci and Betty Sutton were thrown into with each other uh, in the 2012 cycle. It was drawn to help Renacci, but Sutton ran a pretty good race. Uh, Renacci beat her by about four points. So Democrat can compete in that district, uh, particularly as an open seat. Uh, it's just a question as to whether it, it, it you know, it, it uh, the, the race kind of engages or not after the primary. Back to something you said about basically all the candidates in these Republican primaries are pro-Trump. How do you make a distinction if you're a voter then if they're basically both saying the same thing? I, I think from my point of view, it almost like breaks down to more like who's supporting them as opposed to really the, the substance being different of what they're saying. Yeah, again, I, I feel like it, not to be repetitive, but I, I do think there's a question of sort of tone as opposed to substance. You know, it's almost like who's the bigger hellraiser <laughs> to, to be blunt about it. And I think that that candidates like Hagan, like Mary Taylor, like Lenahan down in um, uh, Ohio 12, they're kind of running as sort of the more kind of in-your-face Hellraiser candidates and hoping that Republican primary voters want that kind of uh, that kind of energy, I guess. But again, the differences are kind of subtle. I mean, you would not necessarily expect these members to really vote all that much differently, you know, if they were in, in Congress, um, certainly on the, you know, the congressional side anyway. Although you also have kind of predictable figures taking kind of predictable stances in these races. For instance, the Club for Growth, which often supports kind of what you'd consider to be kind of anti-establishment Republican candidates. They've come in for Lenahan down in uh, down in Ohio 12. Uh, you have some of the former Trump uh, people like Anthony Scaramucci and Seb Gorka coming in for, for Hagan. You know, Gonzalez has more kind of nonpartisan conservatives, you know, Peyton Manning and, and Jim Tressel, you know, people from football who are supportive of him. You know, so so again, these battle lines are kind of predictive, uh, predictable and familiar, even if ultimately there may not be huge differences between how the candidates might behave if they got elected. And one more race that is, you know, doesn't necessarily have a contested primary, at least it wouldn't seem to have a contested primary just a couple weeks ago, is the 7th District over there, Bob Gibbs and Ken Harbaugh. One of the interesting things that's come out is some shenanigans that are kind of being played by the Republican Party and Gibbs sort of pumping up this Patrick Pikus, who was, to put it nicely, not well known. Do you think that that is going to make a difference at all in that race for Ken Harbaugh? I mean, he was kind of the Democratic golden child over there. Uh, well, it seems like it, this this happens a lot these you know in, in recent times, whereas a, a a party will try to sort of mess with the other party's primary so they can trip up the person who's the presumed front front runner. I don't know. I asked somebody about this, and they thought you know basically maybe the state party has a little too much money and a little much t too much time on their hands to be doing stuff like this. You know, kind of trying to mess with Harbaugh in the primary. But I don't know. Maybe maybe Harbaugh loses the primary. I mean, it's not like he's. Uh, I mean, I think he's been been running a very credible campaign, but, you know, he's not like a household name or anything. So but, you know, that district is definitely not one you would think that a Democrat could compete for. Trump won it by about 30 points. Bob Gibbs is kind of a you know, he's he's been been around uh, ever since he won in the 2010 wave under a under in, under different district lines. It also shows how I think gerrymandered these districts are because the district goes all the way from Avon and Avon Lake, where uh, where Harbaugh, Harbaugh lives, all the way down to Canton. Uh, it also takes in Holmes County, which is Amish country, which is actually where Gibbs lives. So it's just odd that you know Avon and and Amish country being the same congressional district, but that's how it's drawn, and certainly drawn to elect a Republican. But but you know, I do I do wonder you know why you know, why the why Republicans are trying to mess with this primary? Are they really worried about the seat? I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, I think I think Harbaugh is a credible candidate. But again, it's such a tough district 
Uh, and that that speaks, you know, to 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 the the House map across the state. You know, again, it's designed to elect 12 Republicans and four Democrats. It has done that uh, in 12, 14 and 16. However, that map is going to be pushed probably in ways that it hasn't been in the past and that um, Democrats are probably going to overperform at least a little bit to of what you what you would expect. And that might allow Democrats to pick up one or more uh, House seats in the state. Does that move show that Republicans are, you know, I guess scared would be the right term? I think about other times when that tactic's been used. Claire McCaskill did it in 2012 against Todd Akin. She Probably the most famous example, yeah, yeah. And she was, you know, afraid of losing her seat. Harry Reid did it in 2010 against Sharon Angle, and he was, you know, af- you know, afraid of losing his seat. Does this show that Republicans are afraid of what might happen, especially I mean, that, that, in a that, district like Gibbs's? That's certainly an inter- interpretation of it. I mean, uh, why do it if, you know, if you thought that the seat was 100 percent safe and— you know, again, tough district, but, you know, Harbaugh has been, you know, raising credible, uh, credible amounts of money. Uh, so, you know, it's it's um, it is a, it is an interesting tactic and, and maybe telling, even though you would not say that that, uh, you know, that's like a toss up house race or something. I mean, Harbaugh would have maybe, uh, you know, an outside chance uh, to win under under good conditions. Kind of moving on to a race that's maybe not on the top of people's minds as voters, just because they don't actually appear on the ballot. You have a very contested uh, battle within the Ohio House Republican Caucus about who's going to be the next speaker. And as people listening to this podcast probably know, the current speaker was supposed to be leaving, or rather the former speaker, because he resigned, you know, six, seven months before his term was to have expired, uh, Cliff Rosenberger. You have uh, Ryan Smith and Larry Householder, two state representatives who are running to be the next speaker. What do you think about that race? Um, it's it's get, it's getting a lot of attention within like the political crowd in Columbus, but maybe not, like I said, as much in the minds of, of voters per se. It is an interesting and very brutal race. What the, a lot of the GOP primaries, as you mentioned, across the state have sort of turned into these kind of proxy battles between the householder and and Smith forces. Uh, there is going to be a, a vote for um, the speakership on May 15th uh, to determine the speaker for the rest of this legislative session. Ryan Smith says says he has the votes. Maybe he does. But just because someone would be speaker now doesn't necessarily mean that they would be come January. Of course, you'd expect Republicans to hold the certainly the state Senate and probably the state House of Representatives. But, you know, they already have about uh, I think it's 65 seats right now. They're, they're going to lose. I think Democrat, Republicans are probably going to lose seats just because it, it, the, the size of their caucus is kind of unnaturally big at this point. But I know Democrats are hoping to make a significant, you know, make significant inroads into the Republican uh, state House caucus. And so the the composition of the next state House caucus is going to be different than what it is now. It's probably going to be at least a little smaller on the Republican side. And they're going to be there's going to be a lot of turnover. So maybe even if Smith can win in May, you know, what if Smith wins in May and Republicans don't have a good election? Does he sort of take blame for that? Can householders sort of come back and try to win the speakership in uh, early 2019? You know, who knows? I mean, I don't necessarily know if this is something that's front of mind for your average Ohio voter. In fact, I'm sure it isn't. It is certainly important to the powers that be in state government because the Speaker of the House is a very uh, important position. And, you know, also it's it's kind of it's kind of funny almost that you, you, you know, you, you see this kind of insider versus outsider dynamic on the Republican side. But, you know, Larry Householder is both these both Householder and Smith are from southeast Ohio. Householder has been running this ad where, you know, he's he's wearing this like camo gear and he like shoots a television and like, you know, you you would think, oh, this guy is, you know, some uh, outs mean outsider candidate. And he's actually w- one of the most powerful people and and powerful kind of insider people in Ohio politics. You know, he, he was the Speaker of the House previously in the early 2000s. So um, certainly that's the uh, that's the look that Republican 
candidates are trying to give to their voters right now, even if it may be questionable, too. And again, we, we bring that up on, you know, like for Mary Taylor running as an outsider, even though she's been around for more than a decade. What I do think it might be noteworthy about this whole kerfuffle over the speakership is that you did have the former speaker leave under, you know, it seems, sounds like he's under FBI investigation over some, you know, lobbyist funded travel and whether that was illegal or not. And you do wonder if that could blow up into some sort of bigger scandal. And I know Democrats have been, Democrats, I think, are hoping that there's a sort of a confluence of scandal that can that can help them the way that scandal helped Democrats in 2006, both here um, with the with the Coingate scandal and Tom Noe from from 2006. And then also, if you go back in history, you know, the Democrats won in 1970. There was uh, something called the Crofter scandal, which was had to do with banking and whatnot. It was kind of it's kind of confusing to me, but it did help. It helped the Democrats that year. Democrats also won in 58 and 82, both years that were both contested under horrible recessions. And so, you know, again, for Democrats to win statewide, they sometimes need a little bit of help. And I wonder if this Rosenberger mess could eventually become that help, maybe combined with some division on the on the Republican side based on this, this battle for the speakership and also some of the other contested primaries that they have. You know, one common theme I keep hearing throughout all these races we're talking about is, uh, you know, just how kind of vicious and contested and how, you know, things have gotten ugly in a lot of these races. And even in the races that haven't been, you know, we talk about the uh, Democratic gubernatorial primary where it hasn't been over the airways. But, yeah, you know, Kucinich and Cordray have been punching each other, you know, whenever they're on a forum stage or anything like that. What kind of baggage are these candidates sort of putting on themselves going into a general election? I mean, is it any... Well, you know, one one wrinkle here that I think is, is kind of interesting is I, you know, healthcare seems like it is sort of front of mind for a lot of voters. You know, when you look at national polling anyway, that asks people, hey, what's the most important issue? Healthcare seems to be coming up more and more. And, you know, of course, we had a lot of elections uh, over the Affordable Care Act. You know, Obama got reelected, but Democrats other did otherwise did poorly in 2010, 2014, 2016. Republicans continually ran against the Affordable Care Act. But, you know, here you have both Mike DeWine and Mary Taylor maybe suggesting that they might do something about Medicaid expansion, whether that be rolling it back or changing it in some way. And I suspect that'll be a flashpoint. And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe if Taylor wasn't around, you know, maybe DeWine got maybe pushed a little bit further right on that than maybe he would have wanted to. You know, only he, he could know that. And, you know, I think about guns on the Democratic side, too, that Cordray may have gotten pushed a little too little further left than maybe he wanted to uh, to get to get pushed. So there may be certain certain issues where the candidates had to, in order to appease a primary electorate, maybe go places where they otherwise maybe wouldn't have gone if, uh, it, it, you know, if if uh, they didn't actually have a, uh, a primary opponent, you know, assuming it is DeWine versus Cordray in the fall. DeWine does start with a hefty name ID advantage. He also starts with a cash on hand advantage. I think at the last report was something like four or five to one. Cordray's a good fundraiser. DeWine's also a very good fundraiser. Obviously, DeWine's got a head start. DeWine also has personal money he could put into the race if he wants to. I don't really think that Cordray does. And another big factor that I think you have to you have to figure in here is that you know national groups will be involved in these race in, in this governor's race. And the Republican Governors Association, which is the, you know, the campaign arm of the, of the Republican governors, they usually have more money to spend than the Democratic Governors Association does. So if you combine 
DeWine's big war chest with the RGA's strength, then you could really see the Republicans having a big financial advantage. However, Cordray may have something more useful, which is potentially the environment being in the Democrats' favor. If there's a generic desire for change in Ohio, after even after eight years of a of a popular governor, but but uh, sometimes there is a desire to, to sort of uh, to sort of switch parties and to give the other guys a chance. Those are things that that would work in favor of, of Cordray or Kucinich if he were if he were the uh, nominee. Are we seeing in Ohio what we're seeing everywhere else? I mean, is the electoral landscape kind of the same? We constantly hear about how the president has low disapproval or low approval ratings, and it looks like it's going to be a wave year for Democrats. Is that what you're seeing in Ohio, or is Ohio shaping up to be slightly different? Well, first, if you know, if Trump's approval is something like 41, 42 nationally, you would expect it to be higher in Ohio. And I cited a, a, a poll that uh, some people supporting Jim Renacci did that had him at, in the high 50s. I don't think that's right. But Trump's approval in Ohio very well could be in the high 40s, uh, which is not it's not great by any means, but it's also not horrible. And so maybe, you know, maybe if there's a Democratic wave, it hits harder in bluer states and, and maybe it uh it doesn't quite hit in, in Ohio, although one thing we've seen from special election results all over the country this year, we haven't I don't think there's been one in Ohio uh, so far yet. Um, but we have seen that um, Democrats have been running well ahead of Hillary Clinton's performance in most places. And that includes some some places that really liked Trump in the last election. So Democrats are coming out of the woodwork and or. Some Trump voters are coming home to the Democrats after voting for voting for Trump. And that's a that's a crucial bit of the formula here for Democrats, because, you know, Sherrod Brown is going to need to win some Trump voters. The Democratic gubernatorial nominee is going to have to win some Trump voters. And, you know, typically a Democrat needs to run fairly well in uh, eastern Ohio, certainly Mahoning and Trumbull counties, Youngstown and Warren, which are, you know, were have historically been very, very Democratic. And Trump actually carried Trumbull and almost carried Mahoning, which is almost unheard of uh, for a uh, for a Republican in a, in a competitive race. Uh, but then also down the Ohio River in places like Steubenville and St. Clairsville, Jefferson, Monroe, Belmont counties. Those are places that have historically voted Democratic until pretty recently. And Democrats need to get some votes in those places. You know, I mean, Clinton was losing some of those places by 25, 30 points. That can't you, you can't win statewide as a Democrat if you're if you're just getting blown out in a part of the state that at one time was, you know, relatively open to voting Democratic. So you know, one other interesting wrinkle that I think is worth noting here, if it isn't if DeWine is, in fact, the Republican nominee, is that DeWine and Houston are both from the Dayton area. Uh, so Montgomery County, um, uh, Husted, uh, Husted's uh, state house and state senate seats were from from around there. Uh, DeWine, one of his first political jobs was the Green County prosecutor. And Green County is just east of Montgomery County. Uh, the Dayton area is a good is a is a is a swing region in Ohio politics. Montgomery County, um, which is Dayton, is historically a place that leans a little bit to the left of the state. And so if a Democrat doesn't carry it, it probably means that they're not doing well statewide. So Clinton did not carry Montgomery County, and it was telling. DeWine and Husted both being from basically from Dayton suggests that they should overperform in that part of the state. So the Democratic candidate, you know, obviously we're not talking about the Electoral College here. It doesn't really matter necessarily who wins Montgomery County or not. But the Democratic nominee probably needs to think about the fact that Dayton may not come in as much for them as it has in the past for winning Democratic statewide candidates. And you have to make up those votes somewhere. You know, certainly 
Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati will come in quite quite strongly for the Democratic uh, Democratic ticket. But, you know, it's a question of can Democrats restore their previous performance in um, not just Youngstown and, and Warren, which I think is a must, uh, but also, uh, you know, uh, further further south of those places in, in Appalachian, uh, Ohio. And, you know, you come back to the gun question. I mean, you know, Cordray is not going to have NRA support this time. Kucinich certainly wouldn't. But uh, but Cordray, you know, also has has. Uh, tried to stay at least a little bit closer to the middle on the gun question. And, you know, that can be something that, that maybe maybe works on a candidate's benefit in a more culturally conservative place in southeast Ohio. But, you know, Cordray did have NRA support in 2010, and, he, you know, he still couldn't win. But if you compare, and I've, I've got maps of this in my uh, crystal ball piece that I, that I just published, uh, I have maps of the 2010 attorney general's race between DeWine and Cordray and also the uh, 2016 presidential race. And you can really see that there was a lot more blue in southeast Ohio for Cordray, for Ted Strickland in uh, in Ohio in, in, in 2010 than than there was uh, in southeast Ohio for certainly for Clinton in um in 2016, in fact, outside of my uh, my alma mater, Ohio University, and the People's Republic of Athens, uh, there was hardly any blue at all in uh, in Southeast Ohio in 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 2016. So the challenge for Democrats is not just winning the big city vote, but it's also trying to uh, restore some restore some strength in that part of the state. What do you think the trajectory is for Republicans in Ohio? Because kind of the book on Ohio is the Republicans that we elect at the state level are people like George Voinovich and John Kasich and Mike DeWine, you know, more sort of pragmatic sort of consensus builder types as opposed to like the conservative fire breather. Um, So uh, but then, you know, Ohio goes around and elects Donald Trump by nine points and suddenly maybe that changes the composition or at least how people think about it. So where do you see Ohio Republicans going? Well, certainly the, the, the trend nationally, I think, has still been toward more of the less of the kind of consensus builders from the uh, from the, the Voinovich mold. You know, I think this primary coming up on Tuesday is going to tell us a lot about it. I mean, you know, we expect DeWine to win. Is it 55-45 or is it, you know, 65-35? I think if it's, you know, a higher number means, I think, a greater tolerance in the Republican Party for some of the some of the, the kind of old hands of the party and people who have been reliable vote getters and reliable office holders for a long time. You know, the, the smaller that margin is, the more it may indicate this continued desire for these kind of people running with that sort of uh, more of that outsider feel. Whether it's legitimate or not, that's sort of you know that's sort of how they're they're running. Certainly, you'd say that about um, about Mary Taylor. Yeah, and I should say, Kasich kind of got elected as that guy, despite sort of you know sort of what he's turned into being today. Yeah, I mean, Kasich was a I mean you know Kasich was a was a Fox News host you know prior to uh, um, you know in his time between being in, in Congress and and uh, being uh, being a, a, a gubernatorial candidate. And, you know, he's also someone who I think was known as, as pretty conservative on the budget when he was in Washington, although. Uh, He also, just like Mike DeWine, was someone who was not beloved by the NRA either. Again, I do think that there is a kind of a a mold that we sometimes see. And look, I mean, J. Kenneth Blackwell was a pretty conservative candidate when he got nominated in 2006. He beat uh, Jim Petro, who was more of that traditional Ohio Republican. And Blackwell turned in arguably the worst performance for a Republican gubernatorial candidate in the state's history. So, you know, maybe if the the Republicans um, go too far to the right, you know, make bad decisions in some of these primaries. Uh, what you know, then you know, we kind of only know after the fact what a bad decision was. <laughs> um, you know, maybe maybe they they open it up to the Democrats and sort of seed the seed the middle middle a little bit. So we have limited data right now, but uh, you did write in your piece about early voting, and I'm wondering what is the early voting data sort of telling us or not telling us. 
Um, the most recent reports that I've seen uh, had that uh, Democrats had a small advantage. I think it was about 115,000 votes cast to maybe more like 90,000 on the Republican side. You know, that's only a small fraction of the total votes that are going to be cast. But the way that Ohio does its party registration, of course, is that it's it's different than most other states in that, uh, you know, if, if you decide on primary day that you want to take the Republican ballot, you take the Republican ballot and then you are, quote, a Republican until the next primary comes along. Uh, same thing if you took a, took a Democratic ballot. And so as a result of that kind of that weird kind of system, there are many more, quote, registered Republicans, however, Republican affiliated voters than there are Democratic affiliated voters. And so I thought it was interesting that with some of the early voting data that more Democrats had had voted so far than Republicans, which would sort of play into what we were seeing nationally and that a little bit more Democratic enthusiasm. That said, Democrats, I, in, in certain states, one party will vote early more often than the other. Certainly in 2016, we saw that if you just saw the early vote results in Ohio, you would think that the, the race would have been 50-50 between Clinton and Trump. I mean, I, those are the results that came in first and it looked very competitive. And then Election Day came in and the Democrats just got overwhelmed. And so it may be that the reason there are more Democratic votes being cast is just because more Democrats prefer to vote early and the Republicans will show up on, a, on primary day and the turnout won't really tell us you know, one thing or the other about uh, about about the fall. But, uh, you know, what those those data points are interesting. I think it's it's um, it can be tempting to maybe overinterpret them. So um, something I'm paying attention to, but but not something I'm going to, you know, make some grand pronouncement about until after I see what the actual turnout is uh, on Tuesday. Before we go, you're a political handicapper. I'm going to ask you to handicap something that's not politics. Now, we talked about your brown socks mm -hmm. and you do. I'm going to. Talk about an off-air conversation we had. You took the over on Browns wins last year in Vegas. And I was way off. I think it was four and a half. I took the over. Stupid. What? What? What is the let's handicap the Browns wins this year? How uh, many? I think it's five and a half. And I'm gonna be a. I'm gonna be an optimist. I'm gonna Man. say. I'm gonna say six and ten. I'm gonna be a sucker again. Six and ten. All yeah. right. Baker Mayfield, the, uh, the well, new savior. I mean, I, I think the Browns hope that that Baker Mayfield doesn't even play. But this is part of the what I don't get about this draft pick is that. You know Baker Mayfield's twenty three. He's the he's you know a, a very experienced player, kind of the guy you'd expect to walk in right away and start in the NFL. Whereas like Sam Darnold was twenty, and you'd think would might develop. So you go and get Tyrod Taylor, but then you bring in a guy who's probably the most pro ready of the, the quarterbacks. Like I don't get that. Anyway, this isn't necessarily a Brown show, but you know we're all we're always talking Browns, of course, everyone. So. <laughs> Well, it could be. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where can people check out the piece? Uh, we are at uh, centerforpolitics.org backslash uh, crystal ball or just uh, Google crystal ball. You'll get a few cr actual crystal balls from eBay. That's not us. <laughs> just scroll down a little bit and you will see uh, Sabato's crystal ball. And uh, I have, a, again, a very detailed uh, uh, piece on preview of the, of the Ohio primaries. All right, Kyle, thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, have a good one.